Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as you saw in the announcement, the children can be dismissed if you haven't left yet. And that's kind of going to be the new pattern of what we're going to do. So during the greeting time, once you see the slide, uh, you can get ready to head back to your classrooms. Um, so it's good to see you this morning. It's good to be together. Uh, I'd like to extend a special greeting to our guests this morning. I would encourage you uh, in your bulletin that you received to fill out the starting point and put that in the offering box in the rear of the sanctuary. We'd like to stay connected with you. Um, and we're grateful that God has brought us together as his family to worship his holy name. Last week, we began a study uh, kind of looking at the subject of God's holiness. And we were talking about how theologians have called this area of God's nature um, a study in one of his perfections. That without this aspect of who God is, God cannot be God. So if God was not holy, he wouldn't be God himself. And we were looking at that, um, that specific passage in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah was caught up in the vision of being in the throne room in the temple and the holy place where God dwells, and how Isaiah caught a glimpse of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, and how the seraphim, the angels, are flying around the throne declaring God's holiness. And Isaiah's response was one of, I, I think, you know, when we read it, it was one where it kind of catches us off of guard because we think, well, surely this should be a welcoming, hospitable place. And yet Isaiah understood that apart from God's work on his behalf, he did not belong in the Lord's presence. Remember, he said, woe is me. I am undone. And as a result of him understanding and, and crying out really in repentance, the Lord ministered to him, and one of the angels flew off and put a burning coal to his lips. And his sins were forgiven, and they were atoned for. We considered the greatness and majesty of of the fact that God is certainly holy. And what I mean by His holy, that He is holy and that He is in His holiness majestic, is that He's set apart and set above all things. And this is one of the things that I want us to carry with us in our study. And I, it's been my prayer this week that you've been awakened to the fact <clears throat> that God is certainly holy, that He is set apart and above all things. And that that would be a comfort to you. Because I think sometimes we, we think in terms of being set apart and holy and majestic and we think, well, he's out there and I'm right here. How can that be a comfort? How can that be a calming, assuring truth? Well, it's calming and assuring because that God that seems so far out has come close to you. And He has provided for you, for you to come to Him. God has not changed. He is the same. And as we consider His holiness, it's important to understand that being aware of His holiness is not a casual pursuit. It's not just, all right, He's holy, okay. Thank you, God, that you are holy. Nor is it something that intrinsically happens when you become a believer. 
Okay, I'm a Christian. I'm always going to know that God is holy. But it's something that we should be praying for. An awareness. Last week, if you were with us, we said the Lord's Prayer together. It's in Matthew 6, at least there. It's uh, Matthew 6. It's quoted again in Luke, in Luke's Gospel. But in Matthew 6, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, how does it begin? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now that phrase, hallowed be thy name, is not just a declaration of what we know about God. Yes, God, you are holy. It's really the first petition. It's the first ask. It's the first as we bow our hearts to heaven's throne. It's the first thing that we are seeking in the prayer that Jesus tells us, teaches us to pray that we would be awakened to God's holiness. Hallowed be thy name. Said another way, it's the idea and understanding that we would begin and live every moment with the awareness that God is holy and set apart. Church, it would be good for all of us to begin each day seeking help from God through His Spirit to revere and honor who He is as the Sovereign Lord. Every day. And you know what that means, right? Every day. Not just on Sundays. Not just when we're just putting our church best on. But really those moments in the in-between that we pray, hallowed be thy name. When we're at work and the timelines or the, the pressures are coming in and, and you have those coworkers that aren't picking up their slack and it feels like everything is on you. Or when you're on your way home and you know you have to be three other different places and yet the five cars in front of you are driving like they've never driven a car before. Or like when you walk in the door and you're just bombarded with all the other things that are going on and you can't even get into the mental space of where do I even begin and prioritize all of this? Or maybe there's some friction with a relationship, whether it's a close friend or a spouse or a child. Or maybe it's the news that you're reading. It seems like the world is falling apart. Or maybe it's the doctor's appointment that is coming up that you know that things aren't right and what could they be? The list goes on and on. And it would be good for us to know that God is certainly holy and set apart. And that we can look to Him as our true north to find rest for our troubled hearts. This morning, I want us to take some time and consider some of the warnings that exist. The warnings that exist in Scripture when we are forgetful about God's holiness. Because we can forget. I know I can forget. I can often look back on moments or seasons in my life or even in the day that I just had and think, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? How did I get there? And I'm going to say up front that the text that we're going to look at, we're going to look at two primary texts, are kind of scary. But I also want to say that they're not proof texts. 
Meaning, always in this situation, if this happens, this is the response. But I hope we see the warnings of what happens when we have a shallow view of God's holiness. That when we're lazy in our appreciation that God is holy and set apart, that God is going to fight for His holiness. I I read it another way um, in in a book in my preparation, and the author said, God plays for keeps when it comes to His holiness. He's set apart. And yet, I also hope this morning we see the great mercy that God shows us. Because to be honest, without His mercy, none of us can stand before Him. The examples are brutal. They're honest. The judgment is swift. The results are devastating. And yet, in no way do we see God as being too harsh. Each example comes as a result of a holy God justly dealing with those who infringe upon His holiness. The primary examples we're going to look at this morning are those of two brothers, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus, and that of Uzzah, in 2 Samuel. Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron. Uzzah helped carry the ark back to Jerusalem. I love it. You're already turning there. That's great. If you know anything about these incidences in the Old Testament historical narrative, you know that all who were involved died in an instant. They died in an instant. To many, it seems that this God we read about in the Old Testament is a vengeful God, that he's looking for ways to kill people. Seriously, critics of the the scriptures, critics of the Old Testament will look at the Old Testament narrative and say, this God is not too loving, not too gracious, not too accommodating to people like us, but that he is too swift too angry, too vengeful, and why would you ever want to follow a God like that? And then we read the New Testament, and we read about a God of grace, and we think, what happened? Did he go to anger management? Did he go through some kind of change? No, he didn't. God is still the same. The scriptures, in a theological way, speak to God's unchanging nature as calling it his immutability. It means that his nature never changes. The clear testimony of scripture is that God is utterly consistent in all of his ways. He is the same yesterday, or yesterday, today, and forevermore, as the author of Hebrews tells us. Now, the first incident that we're going to look at is found in Leviticus 10. And we see two brothers that had a shallow view of God's holiness. 
We're just going to look at a few verses here. I want to read for you verse 1. We read in Leviticus 10, verse 1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. These brothers offered, as Leviticus tells us, strange fire. Now we need to take a step back from Leviticus 10, and we need to look at the context a little bit. Nadab and Abihu were priests as sons of Aaron. And Aaron was set apart as the high priest and his sons. And there was a whole tribe of the Levites that they came from that became the priests of God in the Old Testament. They were the ones that were in charge of the tabernacle and then the temple. They were the ones that would mediate between God's people and God himself. We read in the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible, but especially in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, that the priests had a very specific job. In fact, when Moses came down off the mountain with the tablets and, uh, of the Ten Commandments, and they're starting to get a sense of who God is and what kind of relationship that he wants with them, God gave very specific directions, instructions on how everything should be laid out. And the Levites were set apart as the ones that would stand on behalf of the people before a holy God. God stated in the Old Testament that only the priests were permitted to do certain things in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was that mobile tent that followed the nation of Israel around as they wandered in the wilderness. It stood for the place that God dwelled when he visited his people. Remember, God doesn't dwell in temples or buildings fashioned with hands, but God would choose to visit his people. And when he chose to visit He would rest upon the holy place in the tabernacle over the Ark of the Covenant. And here in Leviticus 10, these sons, who were likely young, they were likely novices, offered strange fire to the Lord. Now, it was interesting this week to read of all the crazy possibilities of what the strange fire was. The the text doesn't tell us what kind of strange fire it was. Uh, Someone actually said that the strange fire in trying to um, reconcile the event of what occurred as a result of the judgment with somehow, and this is a a natural phenomenon, I guess, um, or at least they say so, where like some kind of petroleum fell from the sky and they lit it and it exploded and that's what happened. It's like, no, no. We just know that it was strange. It was different. It was not what was required. Regardless of what it was, we do know why they were judged. At the end of verse 1, they did what the Lord had not commanded them. And so what do we read in verse 2? And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. The sons broke the rolls. Their judgment was swift. 
Listen, if it wasn't Aaron or the other priests or even Moses who judged them, we know that God did it. It wasn't anyone else. They didn't walk out of the room and Moses was like, hey guys, you did something wrong. Can we talk about this? Can you explain to me what you were thinking when you entered this place and did this thing that was not what God had commanded? God himself swiftly judged them. If any people in Israel had a close relationship with God, it was Moses and Aaron. One might expect a little leeway, a little grace. I mean, God knew these men. They were instrumental in helping lead the people in this relationship that God was calling to have with them based on the covenant of his promise. But there was no leeway. It was instant. For one transgression at the altar, God reacted swiftly and violently, wiping them out on the spot. It was not as if they profaned the altar with prostitutes or offered human sacrifices like to Molech. You know, we read that in the Old Testament. They offered strange fire, and in an instant, they're gone. All Nadab and Abihu did was offer some kind of strange fire. I mean, from our perspective, at least from my perspective as a pastor, right, it, it, it seems like as if these were just a couple of young priests that were doing a creative experiment in ministry, trying something new. But it's not what God required. No trial, no opportunity to repent, just swift justice. The judgment was swift, and it was ascribed to the wrath of God. Put yourself in Aaron's shoes as dad. Now, he had other sons, but these were his two oldest. Aaron was with Moses. Aaron helped Moses. They left Egypt together. They wandered in the wilderness where we find this event. Put yourself in Aaron's sandals. In a moment, his sons were consumed in judgment after all the time Aaron gave to the Lord in service of him on behalf of the people. And you get the sense in the text in verse 3 as we look at it that he rushed to Moses. The event happened, he rushed to Moses to tell him what happened and to plead his case. And look at verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, like it, Moses cuts him off. They, they meet and he's like, okay, Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And look at the end of verse 3. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Moses is speaking on behalf of the Lord, and he's like, Aaron, remember the things that God said to us. And remember the most important thing that he said to us concerning how we approach him and how we revere him. 
By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. In that response, Moses said to Aaron all that needed to be said. There was no debate. There was no consternation. There was no argument. There was nothing. Moses spoke on behalf of God based on what happened. And Aaron was silent. In respect to what had been done, the way it was done, and to whom it was offered, the verdict was justified. The Lord will be treated as holy. When the boys acted the way they did, they were acting in clear defiance of God. In an act of rebellion, they desecrated the place that was set apart as holy. And the Lord's response is emphatic. I will. The gavel of justice was lowered. It's all that needed to be said. In essence, what God is saying, my holiness is so pure that I will protect it at all costs. God plays for keeps when it comes to his holiness. And Aaron did the right thing. He didn't say anything else. You know the yeah, but people in your life? Yeah, but. You know, you, you say something, yeah, but. Some of you are thinking of very specific people right now. Built into our concept of justice is the idea that the punishment fits the crime. And you can read this event in Leviticus and think, that doesn't seem to fit the crime. And yet, from the perspective of God's holiness, it perfectly fits the crime. Because God's holiness will not be violated. They knew the instructions. They could not plead for ignorance. They could not excuse their actions. They knew they were not allowed to offer unauthorized fire in the presence of God. Their dad was the high priest. They were trained and consecrated, set apart for the priesthood. They knew it. They never dreamed that their sin would cause such a serious response from God. They assumed too much. In this incident, we are reminded that the sovereign, sovereign one is right in all that he does. And that's the truth stated earlier in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 18. And this is talking about Abraham and God and the relationship of, of what's going on if there be any righteous people if there be any righteous people, God would save the whole city. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. God is just. He is equitable in all of his ways. There is no injustice with God. He is perfectly right in all of his ways. 
The basic assumption of Israel is that God's judgment are always in accordance to his righteousness. His justice is never unfair. It's never tyrannical. It's impossible for God to be unjust because his justice is holy. And so you have the example of the two sons. I'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6. The second example that we're going to look at this morning found in this passage is the story of Israel moving the ark back into Jerusalem. The ark was the holy place. It was the throne. It was the wooden box layered in gold that had cherubs, angels, sat upon it. And in the box were the tablets that Moses had received. And it was the holy place. It was the place where when God did visit the earth, he rested upon it. Now, here's what's going on in the, the wider scope of the narrative. We know that some 20 years earlier, the ark was taken captive by the Philistines. And they had the ark just for a couple weeks. And all sorts of trouble and calamity had fallen on them. All these uh, um, pestilences and diseases and sicknesses and stuff, to the point where the Philistines are like, we've got to give this thing back. Like they thought, we're going to take the thing that Israel needs the most. They had it just for a short amount of time, and there was so much trouble associated with having it. They're like, you can have it back. Just take it. And the ark sat in an area in Israel that wasn't in Jerusalem for like 20 years. And we see that after 20 years of resting in Baal, Judah, King David, who is now king, remember King Saul was the first king, now David is on the throne, King David wanted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. It belonged in Jerusalem, the holy city. In the parallel passage from 2 Samuel, we read in 1 Chronicles 13 these words. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. David talked to the wise people of Israel. He's like, hey, this is the plan. This is what I want to do. What do you think? They all thought about it. They, they, they got together, talked it through, and said, yep, we didn't do it when Saul was king. It's now time to bring it back. So here they are with a parade following, and boy, was it quite a parade. You know, we're a little reserved here in our worship. The thing that the celebration going on would make us feel a little uncomfortable, right? They're dancing, they're playing music, they're celebrating, they're singing to God. I mean, there's this parade going on from where they grab the ark all the way into Jerusalem, and, and King David is leading the parade. But look at the account in 2 Samuel. Verse 1, we read, Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill in Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. 
So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all the instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for the irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Like, This is a celebratory moment for Israel. This is going to be the moment that they're going to look back on and think, oh, here we are doing what God wants us to do, bringing back his presence in a figurative sense into the holy place. And in the midst of the celebrating, right? In the midst of the the joyous chaos of worship to God, a man is struck dead by the Lord himself. Now, when you look at the passage, if you look at verse 3, we read that they used a new cart to bring back the ark. A new cart. Sounds like a fancy new vehicle. Now, I'm not making any specific connection here, but if you've been following any of the the funeral festivities for the queen, they made a big deal about the hearse carrying the, the coffin from where she was in Scotland down to London. It's this Mercedes-Benz that is all decked out, and they seamlessly put it together to carry the body of the queen. You would think, hey, this is a good thing. They're not using some ragtag kind of cart. You know, one they, they bought at Harbor Freight. I know, I shop at Harbor Freight. I can say that. But, you know, they, they, it's a new cart. And we read as this new cart was making its way to Jerusalem to show off this, this piece of furniture, the throne of God, the holy place, that one of the oxen that was carrying or leading the cart stumbled, tripped. And one of the people that was following the ark to make sure it arrived to its destination, instinctively, by reflex, reached out to grab the ark while it was falling off the cart. And instantly when he touched it, he died. That doesn't seem fair. Right? The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Notice verse 7. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. Surely Uzzah's reaction was instinctive. He did what any pious Jew would do. He saw the ark, the holy place, falling towards the mud on the ground. And he reached out. He's like, whoa! And then he was like, oh. I mean, in an instant. It was not a premeditated act of defiance. 
maybe like Nadab and Abihu, where they kind of thought, okay, let's do this strange thing. It's never been done before. Maybe God will be happy about it. He's just reflexively reacting. And from our vantage point, it seems like it's an act of heroism. Like he's, if he could, right, have that out-of-body experience, he's thinking, I'm going to do this thing, and they're going to remember me. Well, he did this thing, and yes, we remember him. It wasn't like God was saying from his throne in heaven, thank you, Uzzah. God killed him for his act of irreverence. Instantly, he died. Uzzah had sinned before the Lord and desecrated the ark. Uzzah was a Levite. And in Numbers 4, we read that a certain tribe of the Levites were named the Kohathites. And this tribe within the Levitical branch that were in charge of the worship and the temple and all those things were tasked with moving the sacred things in the tabernacle. So this tribe within the Levites were tasked with the the tabernacle of moving it and taking care of the items. Remember, the tabernacle in the wilderness was a mobile thing. And so it had to be picked up. And it couldn't have been done in a haphazard way because there were holy things that were a part of the tabernacle. And so God had set aside a certain tribe within the Levites and gave them the task with moving the sacred things in the tabernacle. In fact, in Numbers 4, verse 15, we read that if they touch the holy things, they die. And you think, well, how can you move something if you can't touch it? Well, within the instruments themselves that were holy and set apart, they provided ways for them to be moved without touching them with human hands. And it's likely that Uzzah was a Kohathite. And if he was, we know that he was a Levite. He would have known exactly what his job was as being a part of that tribe. But we also need to notice something else about this incident in 2 Samuel. They used a cart to carry the ark. And yet in Exodus 25 and in Numbers 3 and 4, it clearly states that the ark was to be carried by poles. In fact, on the sides of the ark were loops where you could put the wooden poles and they would carry it as they moved it from place to place. David chose to display the ark on a cart and violate the law. Uzzah knew the circumstances as one who came from a tribe that cared for the holy things of God. And in that moment, Uzzah made a decision that violated God's law, and he was judged in an instant. And then when you look at 2 Samuel 6 again in verse 8, what do we read about all that's going on here? In verse 8, it says, David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David's looking at this, and he's like, I'm trying to do the right thing, God. Why did this happen? How could this happen? I mean, you talk about stealing David's thunder and doing this great thing. So we have those two Old Testament examples. 
very quickly, just so we see the consistency of the immutability of God. He doesn't change. If you looked at the book of Acts and Acts chapter 5, we read about two more people that were judged by God in an instant, Ananias and Sapphira. They, they, they lied about their offering at church. And God's reconciling the ledger, and he's like, this doesn't match up. One, each one of them were brought in separately. Each one of them lied, and each one of them died for their actions. And again, we see the judge of all the earth does what is right. I don't know where my slide went. Oh, so one more thing about Uzzah, real quick. When you start reconciling what Uzzah was doing in a reactionary way, he made the assumption that the mud on the ground was dirtier than his human hand. It was an act of arrogance. He assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. And God is saying, no, your hand is far more polluted than the earth. God demanded that his throne not be touched, and he was judged for his sin because God is holy. God's justice never condemns the innocent. Can we be clear in in saying that? Because at this point, you're probably thinking in your mind, oh gosh, if this is how God is and he doesn't change, what am I going to do? He never clears the guilty His holiness demands perfect justice. He always does what is right. But there are moments, in fact many, that God doesn't act with justice. Can I say that again? There are moments, and they are many, when God doesn't act with justice. And it's in these moments that God acts with mercy. Mercy is not justice. Mercy is non-justice. Mercy is never injustice. It is always non-justice. Sin demands justice. Sin, everything that we think, say, or do that goes against God's holy standard demands justice. Sin brings wrath. Ezekiel 18.4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. Sin brings about justice. Sin can be classified as cosmic treason. It is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign who is holy. But in light of this justice, God, through the cross of his Son, forgives us by his mercy and grace not holding our sins against us any longer. Jesus took the penalty that we are due. Remember, God is just. Sin has to be paid for. Nobody gets a free pass and say, no big deal. The ledger has to be paid. And the scriptures say that if we're a sinful person, which we are, Our sin is paid for by our life. Unless 
someone can intercede. A perfect one. A holy one. One that does not sin. And we know that person to be Jesus. When Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago, he came for the reason to complete the divine transaction of paying for your sin so that the wrath of God would not be poured out against you as a sinner, but to take your place, he took your wrath, the innocent for the guilty. And in light of such marvelous mercy and grace, when we think about the gospel, like we're talking from as a believer now, when we think about the grace and mercy of God, when we sing the songs and we're excited to sing the songs about how his mercy is more, we often expect God to always be merciful. We begin to demand it. And when God isn't merciful to us in a moment where we're going through a a difficult time or a trial and we're upset and bent out of shape, right? Come on, let's be honest. We get upset and bent out of shape with God sometimes because we feel like he isn't doing what we think he should always do on our behalf. We complain, we cry out, and finish it with me. We declare it's not fair. We think in those moments we deserve more grace and more mercy. But by its very definition, grace is undeserved. Anytime we talk about deserving grace, it's no longer grace. It's not. We're talking about justice when we say things like that. Listen, I'm not sure where you are this morning what you're exactly facing right now. But if there is anything I want you to leave here today with, it is this. God doesn't owe you anything. And you might say, that doesn't seem very pastoral, Pastor Todd. (laughs) He doesn't. God doesn't owe you anything. We violate His holiness. God always acts rightly in what he does. And yet, right, this is the but of the truth. God doesn't owe us anything. But if you are here today as a child of God who has been born again through faith in his son Jesus, You have been given everything as a result of his grace and mercy through the death of Jesus on the cross. He doesn't owe you anything, but he loves you. And he's given you everything in his son. And when God looks at you right now in this moment, where there seems to be a lot of injustice in your life and you think, oh my, how am I going to stand? Will I be like Nadab and Abihu? Will I be like Uzzah? God looks at you and sees his son because the righteousness of his son is clothed on you, given to you when you believe. 
It's only by his grace and mercy that you did not end up like Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah. And church, I pray that we praise him today because he has forgiven our our sins. And yes, he has invited us into his holy presence. Let's pray.